Hello and welcome to UK Wildlife Podcast. I'm Neil Phillips. And I'm Victoria Hillman. And welcome to episode, I think it's 47 we're up to now, is it? Yeah, not 48, 47. Um, and we're going to do our second of the two spring flower episodes. We'll be covering bluebells and wood anemones, which is the best flower ever. But we'll start with our sightings and I'll let you go first, Vic, I think. Oh, thank you, Neil. That's very kind of you. Um... I didn't really have that many sightings, seeing a lot more bees in the garden. Did see a brimstone butterfly yesterday, so that was quite cool. Did go from Mammoth Walk a couple of days ago. Uh, we did 20 kilometres around like the local villages here. Uh, saw a lot of male orange tip butterflies, a couple of holly blue butterflies as well. I actually saw, saw one today as well. And then what we believe was a great white egret, but it was a fleeting glimpse as it got spooked and flew off down the river. So can't be 100%, but it was a big white bird that looked like a great white egret. So <laughs> uh, what else have I seen? Interestingly, went out for another walk a few days ago and saw two herring gulls mobbing a heron over the houses, nice. which was quite bizarre. And apart from that, that's about it, actually. I think I've really seen anything else. How about you, Neil? Oh, that, could those herring gulls, is there any flat roof buildings near you? No. Oh, no so I wonder if they were nesting and the heron got too close, because a lot of people don't realise herons will raid nests. Not, that, not can. where I saw it. Now, I don't know if there, there are some flat roof buildings around, but not where I saw this incident take place. It's actually right oh, over the top of the housing estate, to be honest with you. Yeah, I don't eat chicks. I don't know if they actually go into, would they go for a gull's nest? Interesting. Well, if anyone knows, do uh, let us know. But yes. Oh, we have had a goldfinch in the garden a few times this week as well. I get them all the time at the moment. <laughs> oh, we don't, weirdly, we don't normally get them until the napweed goes to seed. Yeah. And that's later on kind of August, September time. So we don't normally get them I at this time I weirdly get them spring and summer and a bit in autumn and then they disappear. They don't come to my feeders in winter. They must join the big flock, not come in the gardens, but I'm pretty sure they nest in the hedgerows near me. Um, in fact, they sing on mm. my TV aerial sometimes. So they must be nesting quite close to my house, which is truly lovely. Now, what have I been doing? I've, I've been um, making the most of the <laughs> what's left of my furlough. And, well, I, I can't let the side down a bit, Vic. Please don't show me. I went to go and see Colin the cuckoo. Uh, yeah. Well, my friend wanted me to take her, basically. So, um, yeah. I, I'll yeah. let you off just this once, yeah. mind. And I, I was planning... Don't let it happen yeah, again. I was planning to go look for some tiger beetles. Yeah, I, I did up just have... Oh, I had to show someone that weirdly lived in the same road as my friend and had just retired like my friend. So it was a very weird coincidence, but I won't, I won't bore everyone with the story of that. But yeah, saw red starts and wood warbler and got a reasonably good view, well, very good view of a willow warbler. Um, although, unfortunately, there was something up with my camera and lens and it didn't take many, long, long story, but I didn't get many good photos, although I think I fixed it now, so that's all good. But I think highlight recently... Oh, Okay, I'll go with the highlight. Green tiger beetles, which are the worst nightmare of things to photograph. You've, you've tried to photograph tiger beetles, haven't you, Vic? I have. To be fair, the, the ones that I've photographed were actually mating, so they weren't moving anywhere near as quickly. So that was a lot easier, I have to admit. For those that know, tiger beetles are the fastest animal compared to their size. Well, they say, you know, lots of things, but one of the fastest and they can fly and they're very skittish. So you get within a metre of them and they run away or fly away. Eventually, I managed to get close to one or two of them and I've got some nice pictures. I actually went back again another day and got some nice pictures. That was good. Also, my mason bees have started emerging today. I actually saw one come out of the hotel, which is rather cool. And they're fairly well known, my bee hotel. I've mentioned it on the podcast and various other places, but I've never seen one come out. So that was really cool. And I had a nice moment today with my son, who's two and a half, and we were on the patio 
and we've been playing on the lawn so the birds couldn't get to the feeders without us being too near and a sparrow came down and I, I sort of stood there holding on to him and he's transfixed watching this bird which is nice and he went off and played like we normally do and then about 10 minutes later he grabs my finger pulls me down onto the patio and gets me to stand still so we can watch the birds come in again so he, two and a half and I've taught me how to bird watch already so that's quite <laughs> you know only for about two minutes but that's pretty good going for a two and a half year old but sure I wouldn't have and perhaps something I should probably put at the top of the list but I won't is the first large red damselflies of the year so this week I had well, some on Wednesday in North Essex and some down here in South Essex on Thursday so I think they're the first records for Essex that I've had well I'm, I'm going to be heading off down to the Somerset levels probably probably not next week maybe the week after to go and start checking on things ahead of a certain dragonfly roost later in the year. Mm, nice. You'll probably see some hairies. I've seen a couple have come out down your end of the mm. woods. So, uh, yeah. And podcast news. Well, the last episode was very popular. <laughs> but the last few have been, so that's great. And we do have to say a big thank you to our Buy Me A Coffee donors. So if you like the podcast, you can buy us a coffee through the buy me a coffee website and i think i may have mentioned meerkat john and essex birder before but just in case i haven't thank you very much guys um and a massive thank you to the well they're at the wild garden but it's the wildlife garden podcast which i'll mention a bit later who sent us a, a nice but well, a few coffees shall we say i think it's a nice way of putting it so thanks so much for that guys it's really appreciated you know if you want to donate to us help pay for some of the costs and hosting and we're hoping to get enough to pay oscar our editor to keep him permanently so uh, that would be good too but i think it's now time for the news yeah should, should i kick us off this week yeah you can go i'm gonna shock everyone i'm gonna do a garden bird story dun, 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 dun. um there seems to be some weird stuff happening with me and birds at the moment um they're, they're taking over my life anyway 16 of britain's top 20 garden birds have declined in numbers this is as a result of the RSPB's Big Garden Bird Watch. So the Bird Watch 2021 was the biggest ever with over a million, a million people, I guess a million people took part or over a million records, which actually doubled last year's numbers, which is great because it does give us a good view overall of what's going on. Sparrow is still number one. Blue tit is up to second and the starlings down to third. Greenfinch and Chaffinch continue to decline, recording their lowest averages since the big garden birdwatch began in 1979. And in the early years, thong, the song thrush was in the top 10. <laughs> so is that the thong thrush? <laughs> the thong thrush. Now I know why you gave this to me, Neil. Um, The song thrush was in the top 10 and that's now down to 20th. Um, And numbers have dropped by about 79%. So that's that's not actually good news at all for the the song thrush. I, I can't even remember last time I saw one, if I'm honest. I'm lucky I've got a few at work that run around on the lawn, which is rather lovely. But yeah, no, they have... They have definitely declined. I mean, I remember when I first started proper bird watching, they'd really dropped... And it was like it was like the big news was song thrushes have declined. I think they I don't know if they've recovered, but they're not plummeting as much or something like that. Or in some areas they've recovered, but I think the fact they eat lots of snails and slugs and people use slug pellets is probably something to do with it. Personally, yeah, I have to look up, look it up again why they've declined. There's a few theories. I think it's a bit like house sparrows. No one's entirely sure. But yes, I'm going to move on to another story, which is a rather nice one, and it's about a rare grasshopper being reintroduced to Norfolk, and this is the large marsh grasshopper. That was clear, wasn't it? God, we're doing well tonight. <laughs> the Large Marsh Grasshopper. That's quite a mouthful to say. But basically, it's a partnership project. Uh, it's led by a group called Citizen Zoo, which I've not come across before. 
but they look pretty cool. And it also involves Norfolk Wildlife Trust and the Wildlife Trust for Beds, Cames and Northamptonshire and Natural England involved as well because certainly I think they're protected. I think they might schedule five large marsh grass officer. Grass officer, grass officer. I can't say grasshopper tonight either. Oh, I've I, better than fong, better than fong thrush. I, I um, promise you, neither of us have been drinking. No. <laughs> uh, God, I wish I had. But <laughs> we are excuse. recording it on a Friday night and yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's been a long week. I, I've got a good uh, excuse. I don't know what your excuse is on you. I'm a dad. That's always a good excuse. Also, go. I'm a man. Also a good excuse. And uh, yes, I'm, and men are useless. So there we go. <laughs> Sorted. There we go. Job done. Excuse made. But basically, they these sort of a wetland grasshopper. So I found them in the new forest on sort of the edge of a bog by a bog, a stream. And it's it's very damp there. Hence the marsh grasshopper bit. Now, they're generally restricted in the UK. Now, fish, most places you read will say just the new forest and parts of the Dorset. But we were discussing before we recorded, weren't we, Vic? We think there's been some found up your way, haven't there? Yes. I I vaguely remember there being reports of them being found in Somerset. Which they haven't been recorded in before. And that that was a few years ago. That that was, yeah, yeah a couple of years vague. ago. I vaguely remember something about that as well. Um, Long story short, they're rare and very restricted in where they live, but they used to be found in East Anglia, so sort of Norfolk and Cambridgeshire fens, which have largely disappeared, but are being restored and, you know, still a tiny percentage of what was there, but some rather large areas like the Great Fen Project and stuff going on. This is quite a cool programme. It's, it's part of this, I mean, people call it rewilding, but it's not, it's, it's reintroducing, it's restoring species to areas they should have been in so the big ones are you know ospreys and white-tailed eagles but we need more of these insects i think so i like this project and what they did in 2018 with permission from natural england they collected a number of wild large marsh grasshoppers i can say i can say it, it seems um, and they released half of them to the new donor site in norfolk kept half in captivity and bred them and they got a team of volunteers together, which they called the Citizen Keepers, some of which were staff and volunteers of Norfolk Wildlife Trust. And for six to eight weeks, they had these, first of all, starting off with these tiny little grasshopper nymphs, and they had to feed them grass every day till they grew up to be big enough to be released. Now, they released some in 2019 and another lot in 2020. And when they surveyed in July 2020, they found males calling and females on the release site. So they would have bred and completed an entire life cycle, which is a very good sign with a reintroduction project because it means you know habitat suitable and everything so hopefully that long term will be a success and go on to more reintroductions and it has been done quite a few times with invertebrates i mean the unit of checkered skippers will very shortly be hearing a bit more about the field crickets in a special podcast but more about that later uh, the large um, large and- blue butterfly was a big one yeah, that, that's probably the classic one, mm, isn't it, really? Yeah. But, um, you know, butterflies don't count as invertebrates, they're too glamorous. But the best one of all, which is the fen raft spider and the most important one, and we might have a podcast on them soon as well. Pretty cool. Yeah. So I've got a good news story here. Um, and it's actually mm. a, one pretty local to me as well. So we have actually talked about the Bristol Channel and sightings of harbour porpoise and that around the channel. And there's actually been a survey of large marine mammals in the Bristol Channel and it's identified it as being a popular location where porpoises give birth and nurture their calves. And yeah, it turns out that Bristol Channel is actually a really important calving area for these porpoises. And Hurlston Point near Porlock in Somerset was a focus for frequent sightings of harbour porpoises during 2020. Volunteers for the annual Somerset and Exmoor Seawatch Survey recorded 10 mother and calf pairs over the summer which is amazing really for it's, mm. and it's a small area you know it's not a massive area Portlock's actually really beautiful and there's a really great tea house down there as well if you're ever down there um, <laughs> important local information there it's very important local information um, there's a very 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 good tea place 
Um, it's where I get my tea from. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think that, that's fantastic news to know that they are doing well down there and it is really important for them. Mm. I've been seeing on social media, there's been lots of sightings of basking sharks in Cornwall and stuff going on. So that's good because basking sharks have been largely absent from Cornwall recent years. So yeah, hopefully uh, things are sort of normalising a bit. I think there was some speculation that it was, well, not just speculation, some evidence that the plankton... And because of climate, the plankton ranges have changed, so the basking sharks are having to go further north. So, yeah, that's all quite good. We'll probably talk about a bit more of that in another episode. Now, I've got another story that's sort of a good story, hopefully. It's a bit of hope, anyway. And this is the Swanscombe Peninsula Development and London Resort. This whole... Basically, they want to build a theme park on an important wildlife site here on Thames Estuary, on the Kent side. So in North Kent, Swanscombe, there's an old brownfield site. They call it Swanscombe Peninsula is the name generally used for it. It's home to over 1,900 species of invertebrate, which by some measurements is more than any other site in the country. But there's a plan to develop this site, which is largely brownfield, to turn it into the London Resort, which is a 3.5 billion pound development. And one odd thing about it is the government have designated it a national significant infrastructure project, which is usually reserved for things like HS2 and, you know, big roads and motorways. But they've done it for this, but supposedly because it can give lots of jobs and stuff, I guess. But uh, within the last month, so this is a slightly old story, but so some of you might have heard it, Natural England have designated this site an SSSI which site is a site of interest, which means it's recognised as an important site for wildlife. Some, In some cases, it's fossils as well, but let's not go into that because that doesn't apply here. So that seems quite good on the face of things. You think that might stop the development, but of course, it's already been designated a national significant infrastructure project. And the chief executive of the London Resort Company, who want to build this resort, said, the project will of course continue and this is just another issue to address in the long history of this project. So he's basically going, who cares? And then they give some waffle, I'm not going to read it out, about how it's going to be green and sustainable and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Uh, you know, it was, I should probably be a bit more neutral before in a story, but it's basically greenwashing and trying to justify it. Someone posted from Save Swanscombe Peninsula, who you should follow on Twitter, by the way, a map of the areas they're going to build on and destroy for wildlife and it's basically most there's only like a few patches left of wildlife there's no way you can replace that you know you can't recreate something that rich and diverse it's a bit like these people planting trees after cutting down ancient woodland it's uh yeah but if it does go ahead it's sadly going to be part of a long history of sites being destroyed in the Thames estuary we managed to save i say we not me personally but we as conservationists uh, managed to save most of canvey wick which is another very rich brownfield site but the Tilbury Power Station site got destroyed after being on course to become an SSI it was mysteriously stopped and then planning permission to build and it was granted and a big chunk of the West Furrock Marshes site was destroyed as well and that is the only other site other than Swanscombe Peninsula for the distinguished jumping spider so you know hopefully we can at least save part of this Swanscombe Peninsula but yeah hopefully the momentum if not swung towards saving it is at least swung closer towards it so Let's cross our fingers on that one, I think. Well, I think hopefully it raises more awareness as well. Yes, that's one one good thing. When the Tilbury Power Station went one under, it was basically bug life shouting and nobody listening. Whereas this time, like Kent Wildlife Trust and a lot of other people have got behind the campaign 
So hopefully, you know, they're at the very, very least, they're going to have to do some serious mitigation for it, I hope. Yeah, with the current climate and stuff, building a big resort attraction might not go ahead. You just don't know these things. We'll see. But let's just say there's a lot of money behind that project. And, uh, you know, cynical old me thinks, I thinks he knows where it's going to go, I'm afraid, <laughs> but um, as it usually does. And I'm just going to finish on one last story, which is bad, but... Good outcome. Good outcome. I don't know if good counts, but an outcome. Yeah. <laughs> an outcome. Basically, in Norfolk, um, near Fakenham, someone reported some people behaving suspiciously in a private woodland that's full of bluebells. And it turns out that they had tried to steal and had already dug up 8,000 bluebell bulbs, but they got caught and the landowner is now replanting all the bulbs. So, uh, yeah. So at least they didn't do any long-term... Well, it would have done some damage, but hopefully it'll be restored pretty quick. But it does provide a neat segue into our main topic for today's podcast, which is bluebells and wooden enemies. And Vic's going to start with bluebells. I am. So Neil's going to have the wooden enemies because they're his favourite flower. And I'm going to have the bluebells because I think they're actually fascinating. And, you know, they're... I mean, here, our bluebells are only just starting to get going, but I've seen reports of them being in like full bloom in other parts of the country. Maybe we're just a bit behind here. here. But there we go. But I think it's May would normally be the peak time for us around here anyway. So we're probably not really that out of tune of when it would normally be. And I think there's probably nothing more iconic, you know, there's, there's not a more iconic image of spring than carpets of bluebells in our woodlands. And I thought you were going to say um, bee flies flying around, but okay, go on. <laughs> Neil, this episode's about plants. Uh, but yeah, I'm just squeezing bee flies, you'll yeah. see. <laughs> yeah, you probably will actually, to be fair. Uh, <laughs> I managed to squeeze frogs into pask flowers, so... <laughs> you did actually, yeah, that's true. Um, but yeah, so, so, you know, we see these carpets of flowers in our ancient woodlands and it's in the kind of moist, shady and well-established habitats so that they really thrive. But there's actually an awful lot more to these beautiful flowers than first meets the eye. So in medieval times, it was believed that the bluebell rang out to s- summon fairies, but any human that heard the ring would soon die. So be careful if you're going into bluebell woodlands. And during the Bronze Age, a sticky sap produced in the bowl was actually used to glue feathers to arrows. And the same sticky substance was also used in bookbinding, which is really interesting. But that said, due to their toxicity, there's actually very little use for bluebells in modern medicine. However, their bulbs do have diuretic properties, basically increases urination, and syptic, which helps to stop bleeding. And research on these flowers could potentially help fight cancer. Um, and that research is currently ongoing. Uh, as, and it's not just bluebells, it's actually a lot of compounds from both plants and animals and particularly animal venoms that are being investigated for stuff like that. Oh, we should definitely do a podcast on animal venoms. So the scientific name for our British bluebells is Hyacinthoides non scripta. And we're talking about our native British bluebells here. This originates from Greek mythology. When Prince Hyacinthus died, the tears from Apollo spelled the word alas on the petals of the hyacinth flower that grew from Prince Hyacinth's blood. Um, non scripta means unlettered to show the bluebell is a different species to the hyacinth. So that's where it's believed to have come from. So though we refer to it as the British bluebell, it does have other names, including wild hyacinth. Woodbell, bell bottle, cuckoo's boot, lady's nightcap, fairy flower, and witch's thimble. 
These wildflowers are slow growing and they can take between about five to seven years to grow from a seed to a flowering bulb. So the magnificent carpets that we see around this time of year and over the next few weeks will have taken many, many years to develop. The bulbs themselves are actually poisonous and they contain at least 15 biologically active compounds. And this actually helps to protect them from pests and animals that would like to munch them. There are some invasive Spanish bluebells, though. These are Hyacinthoides hispanica. Um, they've escaped from gardens or been planted in the wild. Now, this is actually a major issue in some areas. And I know one of the woodlands I go to, there, uh, there there's a lot. There's, there's not so many Spanish bluebells there, but there's a lot of hybrids. And it's actually decimating some of the populations, unfortunately. So if you ever kind of want to tell them apart... The British bluebell has long, narrow flowers that usually hang to one side off a curved over stem. Petals turn upwards slightly at the tip and they have creamy, whitey, creamy coloured pollen um, or anthers. Um, and the Spanish bluebells have an upright stem with denser packed flowers on all sides. They have blue pollen and anthers. Uh, they're, they're actually much chunkier and open flowers. And when you see the two together, you, you definitely can see the difference. The leaves of Spanish bluebell are also much wider distinctive enough that even Neil can spot the difference. Yep. The useless botanist can tell. So, uh. <laughs> and it is, once you see the two, it's actually really easy to tell them apart. Mm. Now, one of the main concerns other than competition for habitat and pollinators is the two species do hybridise and they hybridise very easily. And there are concerns that the hybrids may displace our native bluebells. And even Spanish bluebells planted in a garden near woodland could potentially lead to hybrids being formed if a pollinator travels between the two. The hybrids have intermediate flower shape and other features between the two species, but only the native flower has all the flowers on one side of a drooping stem. So one of the woodlands that I go to, there's a good chunk of it now that is actually hybrids. And you can tell because they're actually so much bigger as well. But you can tell they're kind of somewhere between the two. And they're certainly starting to take over part of it. Now, interestingly, almost half the world's bluebells are actually found in the UK. And the kind of native British one is actually relatively rare in the rest of the world. So here in the UK, they are protected under the Wildlife and Countryside Act of 1981, preventing them from being dug up from the countryside or being removed from land for sale. They're also listed on Schedule 8 of the Act in 1998, making trade in wild bluebell bulbs or seeds illegal unless you have a license. Despite this, a lack of understanding of their delicate nature is putting our magnificent bluebell carpets at risk. And this isn't just due to people stealing them and digging them up, as, as Neil mentioned in that previous story. Over you know, the last few years, they've become... You know, their, their popularity has skyrocketed as a photographic subject and there's a drive to capture something different or a pet or a family photo in amongst the bluebells. And this is actually causing potentially irreversible damage to these carpets. And this is actually because when the leaves are trampled, they die back and they're unable to photosynthesize. And this depletes their food supplies for the following year and thus reduces their ability to flower. If no further damage is caused, they can take years to regenerate. But in some of the more popular spots, the damage can be significant and repeated trampling events results in the flowers being unable to produce seeds. And in some places, paths have, wide, paths have widened significantly due to the trampling closest to the path. And I, I've actually seen this in person where you've got a path where you can easily walk down, you know, but it, it's it's just wide enough for you to walk down. And then years later, this path is now six foot wide. So it, it is incredibly damaging. And this has actually led to some areas now putting fences up to actually stop people going in amongst the bluebells. Yeah, I mean, my, well, 
probably the, one of the more popular woods near me is uh, Norsey Woods, which is actually in Billericay, right on sort of part of the town almost, that if you look on the map. And that's reported to be one of, if not the densest bluebell woods in if not the country in the world but over the years there's more and more little paths going across the bluebells coming out where you know people are taking shortcuts walking their dogs every day and that tramples the soil you know in the wild when you want to get bored digging it up it churns the soil so at least they can come back and the seeds germinate but this is just trampling it and like you say you get the family photographers and i actually watched one rolling sort of a three foot wide heavy log farmers do that to trample <laughs> trample down weeds sometimes you know just so they can sit the family in the middle of these beautiful bluebells and they've crushed a 10 meter strip or meter wide and it's like oh if you've got any competence you use one of these paths that are already there and sit a minute it looks better but they probably want it clear at the fr- oh you just want to slap people like that sometimes <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, i mean it I is, don't condone violence but yeah you know, it oh. is it is absolutely devastating i mean whenever i'm photographing bluebells you know, if, if they're not right next to the path, I use a zoom lens to photograph. Yeah, it's not rocket science. You know, so that I'm not trampling in amongst the bluebells. But, you know, I've approached people before when they've got their, because they're actually picking the bluebells, uh, mm. which you're not supposed to do, you know, or they're, you know, I said they've got family portrait or, or whatever. And I think, unfortunately, I think social media has a part to play yeah. in this as well. So people trying to outdo each other for more likes and or whatever mm. on social media because they got a different bluebell photo and what and that it's it's definitely driving mm. obviously it is a bit of like a toxic Instagram influence yeah. and stuff like that, isn't it? Because yeah, there was a thing with the California poppy like that. I don't know if you saw that that there was a big bloom of them. Was it last year, year before? And all the Instagrammers went up there. And just trampled huge, great swathes into the, you know, every wave would go back. People would come, would trample a load more. But oh, what can you do? Yeah. What can you do, really? Oh, little little tip, though. You talk about using the zoom lens. Using a long telephoto on a flower like Bluebell, actually, in my view, actually looks better than using a macro. If you're just trying to get the whole flower with a nice background. There's a little photography tip we've squeezed in there. <laughs> we haven't done any photography for a while. We haven't, actually. On this podcast. Yeah. So we've just got a couple more points, actually, that we've kind of dug out. And there's... Neil actually mentioned about wild boars and there have been claims that wild boars can destroy bluebell woodlands. You know, claims of wild boar will rid the Forest of Dean and UK woodlands of bluebells within two years. You can have bluebells or wild boar, not both. This actually isn't true. Although they may eat a few, they're not going to eat that many because they're toxic. So if they eat too many, well, they'll only do it once. Uh, Boar actually break up the carpet effect but you know that okay yes that is a bit unnatural but they break up the soil and encourage the growth of more diverse floral species unlike the trampling that we've been talking about by humans and dogs so yes potentially that they might cause some damage but they also can do a lot of good in woodlands as well however monkjack deer may be more harmful so in 1997 cook compared fenced off areas to unfenced areas in monkswood in cambridgeshire those outside the enclosed area being grazed by monkjack deer were not significantly less abundant but had significantly shorter leaves which is interesting so in comparison to other woodlands with lower monkjack densities there were less flowers. So in April, 41% had gone, but observations by May showed that 61 to 97% of flowers had been grazed. So there's definitely obviously a grazing effect going on there. I work at someone with a high muntjac diversity, um, not diversity, high (laughs) muntjac density. There's not lots of different types of muntjac. And the bluebells fail to flower most of the time. Because they, they, t- they take the tips of the leaves off, well, probably earlier in the year when there's not much else to eat. 
that's green and they take the flowers off and it's very rare to see a bluebell flower there but we've just built a dead hedge around there we're going to see if that flowers better so that'd be interesting to see wow fingers crossed and mm. and here's something that actually neither neil and i knew about did we neil so mm, quite an interesting no. bit of this so bluebells actually benefit from a symbiotic fungi that integrate with their roots and help with nutrient uptake particularly phosphorus. So Merriweather and Fitter in 1995 state that in mature forest soils, which are usually phosphorus deficient, a coarse-rooted plant like bluebells is unlikely to be able to obtain sufficient phosphate by root absorption alone. The roots form almost straight after they grow from the bulb, have these symbiotic arbuscular endophyte fungi. Now, observation... Well <laughs> words, I, manage them. <laughs> I managed that, but couldn't say song thrush. Um, yeah. <laughs> observations have only found one bluebell growing without these fungi, suggesting they're highly reliant, possibly entirely in most cases, on them to survive. And this was further confirmed by their experiments with bluebells grown in sand without the symbiotic fungi. And despite feeding the plant phosphorus nutrient solution, it was unable to absorb enough without the fungi. And that's actually really interesting because quite a lot of our native orchid species actually require symbiotic fungi to survive as well. So there we go. Mm. There's some interesting facts for you about bluebells. Uh, and I think, Neil, you're going to take us on to wooden enemies now, aren't you? Yeah, which is a far more better flower um, by my extremely <laughs> totally you know biased opinion at all biased opinion <laughs> totally objective yes yes maybe maybe not so wooden enemies they're kind of the flower you draw if well is it you know if someone says draw a flower really aren't they <laughs> it's got six petals white yellow in the middle with a bit of green going on there as well although they can be quite pink i found some the other day that were lovely and pink mostly on the outside of, of the petals. Now, they're another one of these plants that's part of that buttercup family that seems to have pretty much every flower we cover on this podcast. Um, and they are native, and they tend to appear just before the bluebells, so between March and May, generally. I've seen think of it as an April flower, personally. And they'll still be flowering as the bluebells come up, and you get these lovely... Well, it depends who you ask. It's either a lovely mixture of blue and white or a messy mixture of blue and white. <laughs> I've noticed a few people have different opinions on that one. I actually I like the mix of bluebells and wooden enemies because that's what we get yeah. here. The, yeah. they, they normally flower around the same time and you get that lovely kind of palette of colours. I like yeah, it's it. interesting. The, the first time I went to Noisy Woods, they were nice and mixed. I thought, oh, brilliant. And then every year I won a, uh, I tried to run a workshop. The wooden enemies are basically finished, but there we go, silly things. So the beautiful white flowers get their name from the Greek anemone, which means daughter of the wind, uh, with one of the old common names for the flower being windflower. And nemorosa, which is a species name from the Latin nemus, which means forest, which references where they grow. So that's some nice. See, another good thing about them, they have Latin names I can pronounce. So, you know, <laughs> all good. Um, the Romans considered them lucky and used them to ward off fever. Um, now, I've mentioned the white petals, but I'm afraid that it's another one of these silly botanical things. Oh, silly botanical things, that's a horrible way of putting it, isn't it? Um, these botanical things where technically they're not petals, they're actually sepals or tepals. <laughs> I swear it's, it's a one type for every letter of the alphabet of these things, which are, yeah, like I've mentioned, are quite often pink-tinged. Um, they like sometimes have sort of pink veins going through them as well. That's usually when they first open as well. So you quite often find a sort of half-open pink flower. Now, they follow the, the sun round, so they sort of point towards the sun in the morning and follow it across the sky towards the west. They are poisonous again. I think any plant that grows on the forest floor that doesn't have some sort of poison in it will be quickly devoured by deer, but 
if you ingest it, it can cause illness and apparently can cause skin irritation. So uh, don't pick them. You can also get clobber around the back of the head with a tripod if I'm there when you pick them. <laughs> Which is another health hazard. Yes, oh, me carrying a tripod doesn't happen very often. The leaves and flowers, uh, as I have mentioned, despite being poisonous, do get eaten by roe deer especially, which can limit their spread. And again, these deer eating the blooming flower heads, they can eat 75 to 80% of the flower heads in some areas. But I couldn't see if that was related to, because deer are basically overpopulating a lot of the British Isles because there's no predators for them. So I don't know if it's anything to do with that or not. Now, they are very slow growers, which makes them great indicators of ancient woodland. And they tend to spread through growing through the rhizome-like roots. They, Well, I say roots, stems, which are sort of at ground level, rather than seeds. And they can take 100 years to spread six foot. But this is despite the fact they will grow under the ground between May and September when all the leaves have gone. So they'll still be growing these little underground stems of course because they're spreading by roots they're actually just one plant that's basically a clone and with these taking a hundred years to spread six foot you effectively got the same plant genetically at least or you know that's grown from the original plant which you could argue means the plant's a hundred years old or more if you think of it that way which is quite cool when you think of that but another reason they you think oh well the seeds would spread quicker than the rhizomes but the seeds are basically a bit rubbish and a lot of this information I got from a rather cool blog called Botany Karen's blog. So go check that out because that's a really quite a cool blog. Now, originally they thought most of the seeds being shed by wooden enemies weren't viable and were immature, you know, because the seeds got ripened and fall off. But they were falling off before they were fully ripe. But it turns out that a lot of the seeds actually mature in the soil after they fall off the plant, which, uh, as I gather, is fairly unusual for plants. And from the point of falling off the plant to flowering can take 10 to 12 years which is, you know, quite a long time for a little flower. Now, they have these really cool fleshy lipid outgrowths on the seed known as elisosomes. Now, some of you might think, I've heard that word before because I certainly did before. I know that. And that's the things that basically attract ants. So the ant comes along, finds the seed, goes, mmm, lovely little bit of lipids here and picks it up and will either take it underground to the nest or, you know, disperse it around. And so basically they get dispersed by ants, which is pretty cool. And... I don't think it's a coincidence that in the Essex woodlands you quite often find wood enemies. There are also wood ants, which might also relate to the fact that they're coppice too. But yeah, so this seed dispersal by ant is known as Myra micorrhi. I should really just learn to pronounce Latin better, shouldn't I? But Myra means ant, basically. So that's quite interesting. And looking at some studies, Urbar and Peter in 2013 did a quite interesting study on nectar production in wooden enemies. Now, wooden enemies were originally believed to not produce nectar, but observations of bee flies, uh, he says I'm sneaking in somewhere, um, had led to the discovery that there is in fact a form of nectar. Now, this is a bit of a circular discovery, this, because uh, if you read some of the old books, they think bee flies only feed on nectar, but we now know they also feed on pollen. But because of this assumption that they only feed on nectar, we found that wood enemies do in fact produce a form of nectar, but it, it's just like a, a very basic one right in the centre of the flower. So it's not like your typical nectar. Now, another study by Brunette in 1998 found that wood enemies will spread into new woodland from existing ancient woodland. So that's quite useful for, you know, nature reserve expansions but it is a very slow spread if there's any sort of long grass and stuff to compete with it it won't spread at all or not very quickly but once you get a decent canopy going in the new woodland it will spread well quickly for wood enemies <laughs> especially if there's not too much leaf litter to stop them spreading as well but he did find that 
for many years afterwards. Even once when enemies are spread in, uh, the density is so low and sort of sparse that you can tell that it's new wooden enemy growth. But once again, that does illustrate that you can't move an ancient woodland, um, as we mentioned a bit earlier, which the people working on HOS2 should really look at. And one last study in 2010 by Fren et al. talked about the effect of climate change may have on this plant. And it will actually have one positive effect that those useless seeds, <laughs> near useless seeds, as I say, um, will germinate more often under the climate change. But um, whether that will outweigh all the negative effects on the climate if we've got drier springs like we've had recently remains to be seen. Yeah, but that's the wooden enemy and hopefully that'll go some way to justify why it is my favourite wildflower if I had to pick one or maybe oxide daisy. One of the two. <laughs> they are really beautiful flowers though. I mean, we're, we're just, mm. we still have, you know, carpets of them here. Uh, they're probably actually peaking round about now in some places. In some places they're they're only just coming into flower, but they are they are beautiful when you see them mm. for sure. Yeah, now you can't you can't beat a nice walk in an ancient woodland with bluebells, wooden enemies, stitchwort, primroses, yellow archangel, wild garlic, and, uh, yeah. <laughs> wild garlic, green alkanet. Uh, so we've got like, we've got oh, here's some hints what we'll probably be covering this time next year. <laughs> But all flowers that you can identify. Yes. <laughs> That's what I like as well. There's not multiple species that look very similar of all those. Well, forget the forget-me-nots, although it should be would forget-me-not in a woodland, but mm. you never know. But interesting is, well, if anyone's interested, because uh, I know in the previous wildflower episode we mentioned about snakes have fertility growing in gardens. If you do want to put bluebells in your garden, there are places now that you can buy British bluebells. So please do not buy the Spanish variety. I only yeah. buy the British variety. They are easy enough to come by. I've planted some in my garden. Yeah, there and don't buy Spanish, buy British. Yeah. Um and you can you can even buy wooden enemies as well now, although I planted them in the wrong place. I did have one grow this year. Uh, which is quite nice, but um, yeah, pretty sure they're not going to grow in my garden. No, nah, they. Don't, I think they do like a bit of shade in summer and stuff. You know, they're a bit more fussy than the bluebells, from what I can gather. And basically, it's quite funny. It turns out it's just a, a load of roots. It's like, what the heck is this? Because you buy some of the ornamental anemones, and they've got a, a big chunky rhizomy, not bulb, but you know, the sort of um, husky thing. Um, but literally, just got some roots of anemones. I went, what? But they, they grew and they flowered, but um, I didn't put them in a very good spot. But yeah, I think that's just about sums it up. I've just got to do my talk about a podcast, another podcast suggestion. Um, I'm going to go with the Garden Wildlife podcast, which has nothing to do with them bribing me with. <laughs> I genuinely started listening to it this week and it's really good. Um, if you like the format of this podcast, you'll like the format of that podcast because it's quite similar. They've even got a male and a female host as well. So, um, But it's it's... Oh, it sounds a little bit egotistical to say it, but it's kind of the wildlife gardening version of this podcast. Probably, I hope they won't find that offensive to be described as that. Go give it a listen if you're into wildlife gardening at all. And even if you're just into plants as well, they did a lot on plants and bees and stuff and just wildlife. It's well worth a listen. But yeah, I think that's about it from us, isn't it, Vic? Um, I think so, yeah. You might be in the next episode, depending on what the topic is, um, but you'll certainly be back in a few episodes' time for the 50th one, won't I you? I will so. definitely be back for the 50th. And then, yeah, things kind of before and after really still very much up in the air right now but i will definitely be here for the 50th for sure oh, that's great well i guess that's it from us i'll just uh wish you luck with seeing those fong thrushes yeah um. thank you <laughs> <laughs> um and that's you know gonna... tonight's episode has been brought to you by the end of a very long week and it being friday night <laughs> yeah oh marvelous just do it more often <laughs> sounds great right okay guys and uh, uh see you next time take care 
you for listening to the UK Wildlife Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe and leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast service you use. You can follow us on Twitter at UK Wildlife Pod, or one word. Or on Instagram at UK Wildlife Podcast. And like us on our Facebook page, UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can also post to the UK Wildlife Podcast community group. If you would like to share your wildlife news or sightings with us on Instagram or Twitter, then please tag us in the post and use the hashtag UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can now support us through our Buy Me A Coffee account, which you can find at buymeacoffee.com forward slash UK Wildlife Pod, where you can give us a one-off bit of support or join our membership scheme. Head there to find out more. This episode was edited by Oscar Henderson. You can find him on Instagram at oscar.creates. 